for joining me for the Plant Yourself Podcast. I'm your host, Howie Jacobson. Whenever we are conscious, we are making decisions. And we make decisions all day, every day. And some of them are little and inconsequential, and some of them are huge and earth-shaking. And most of us have never learned how to make a decision. We've never learned a process. We've never learned a means of evaluation. We've never learned how to learn from past decisions, good and bad, so we make better decisions in the future. Today's guest, Nika Kabiri, is a decision scientist. She gets paid a lot of money by companies, and those of us who don't have corporate budgets typically get left out of the the incredible benefits of decision science in our own lives, where they are probably more, even more applicable and more important because this is about us. This is about our happiness. This is about you know, where we choose to live, the jobs we choose to take, who we choose to associate with in our lives, whether to have kids, whether to change careers, whether to start running, all this stuff. We tend to make these decisions based on emotion, based on impulse, based on poor heuristics. So in our conversation, Nika Kabiri, Dr. Nika Kabiri, and I talk about how to make good decisions. And she helps me uh, unpack a few of my own decisions and explains the ways in which I have been thinking about things in a suboptimal way. Now, this was the first ever podcast that I recorded using Riverside FM instead of Zoom. And sadly, it didn't work out very well. We dropped off about eight times before we finally figured out how to how to stay on at the end. So you might hear a little bit of sort of banter back and forth about, hey, it's good to see you again, which is what that's about. We just... Uh, plowed through. And I think you'll find that the audio quality is better here than in Zoom because I'm able to uh, equalize each track individually and uh, get rid of some artifacts that weren't possible because Zoom just sent me a single track. So and I've done like several interviews since then. So Riverside, you've uh, you've made up for it. It's been great. And just wanted everybody to know if you hear weird stuff going on, that's what's going on in the background. This is a, like a, under a 50 minute interview and it took uh, about 65 minutes to record. So there was a lot of, of blank space. Anyway, that's not your problem. And it's not mine anymore because all the edits are done. So without further ado, Nika Kabiri, welcome to the Plant Yourself podcast. Hi, thank you for having me. It's a pleasure. So I, I, I came across your name and your work in an article that we were both quoted in about uh, convincing people to get the COVID vaccine. And I, I followed up on, on your work and started getting your newsletter. And it's one of the newsletters I really look forward to receiving in my email every week. So I want to begin by, by acknowledging that and thanking you for the work you do. Well, thank you. And thank you for reading my newsletter. It really, I'm, I'm honored. Yeah, I've, you know, I'm, I'm tempted to take on your, your ending catchphrase, that is all. <laughs> you know, I stole that from um, another, it, this is before the internet, before blogging. Um, there was a poet who I really liked. He was just the local poet in the town that I grew up in. And he had published a work, a book of work. Um, and he ended every poem with that is all like, oh. it was just so definitive. Like, that's all I have to say. That's all there is. Um, I just thought that was really catchy. So I love it. I, I was wondering whether it was, um, <laughs> you know, homage to a devil wears Prada. No. Oh, yeah. No, actually, no, not that. Definitely not that. No. <laughs> or, or I guess the, the farmer in Babe. So, you know, that'll do. Right. 
So, we all need a catchphrase, right? Yeah. So, so let's let's talk about um, your work, which is to help it help people make better decisions. Like, I, I didn't know that was a thing. When when did that become a thing? Is that a thing? Yeah, that is a thing. Um, and I think it's a relatively newer thing. I think there have been in a number of different academic disciplines over the years, some attention on decision making, like psychologists have studied it, sociologists have studied it, economists have definitely explored um, it and modeled it quite a bit. Um, but it's only more recently, I think, that academics especially have started to kind of combine a lot of these disciplines and also kind of focus um, more mathematically, like using data, math, statistics, really rigorous techniques of science to help people make better choices, especially as applied to business. I think that's really where a lot of that decision science stuff comes comes into play. I tend to take a kind of a, a maybe an offshoot of all of that, which is to kind of apply it to everyday life. You know, mm -hmm. I'm not really, um, I do have a consultancy where I help businesses make better choices, but my my passion and my heart is in helping everyday people benefit from the science of decision-making um, as they choose what careers to have or who to marry or what home to buy or whatever. Mm. So do you think the, the, the focus has been on business because that's who has the money to pay researchers and consultants or it's because there's enough data there or because the outcomes are, are pretty clear? Like what, what? What do you think the valence? That is a that is a good question. I'm really not sure why that's the case. Um, I know that businesses do have quite a bit of data at their disposal, and I think it's just a general tendency of human beings that if they have information available, they they tend to want to use it, and if it's not available, they don't tend to go out and find it. And because businesses do have data available especially these days with um, you know, data analytics being what it is, big data being what it is, it's kind of, it's easier to, um, to do those kinds of analyses. Um, I think it's a great hypothesis. I don't know if you use my category, a great theory or hypothesis that, um, that there's not only money to invest in making good decisions, but there's also money to be made in making the right decisions. So I think, you know, uh-huh, where there's money, there's a lot of effort, right. usually, unfortunately. Yeah. yeah, it seems like, you know, there's there can be very different types of decisions in business versus personal, like who to marry, what kind of car to buy. But like one, one area where I see people having making the same kind of decision very, very differently is, let's say, around climate change, where businesses are clear that it's going to happen. <laughs> And they have to mitigate or accommodate or make other decisions. Insurance companies are very clear, like there's no question. And yet for ordinary people, it's like, well, I don't know if it's real. It was warm last week. You know, humans have been messing with the weather, you know, like like it seems like there's very, very different approaches to decisions and to the, the validity of data, whether you're in the business world, which I, you know, I tend to think of as kind of right wing, but is actually like far more reality based than I think a lot of the decisions we make personally. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, um, like I said before, I think a lot of that has to do with the fact that information that businesses have at their disposable at their disposal is um, it's it can be pretty vast. I mean, I think a lot of organizations sometimes struggle with having too much data, for instance. 
Um, but I think in our in our regular lives, we are not in the habit of co regularly collecting, curating, and analyzing data that pertains to you know what to have for dinner or you know what to wear in the morning, um, how to optimize those decisions. Um, so there's a, there's a lack of access to information or regular access to information, but there's also in business um, over time because data-driven decision-making has become so valued, businesses have institutionalized processes to basically do that, to make data-driven decisions. So they've hired certain people whose jobs are specifically to, you know, analyze data and come up with insights. Um, they have uh, processes for sharing out that data. They hire economists to you really rigorously analyze that data or mathematicians sometimes. So, you know, they put in processes in place. Like we could do that too. Like we could, you know, keep a note of every um, meal we have and how we felt afterwards and the ingredients of the meals and just do some sort of, you know, we could do some statistical analyses to figure out what the best dinner for us is, but we just don't have those processes in place. It's not really efficient. And also the ROI on that doesn't seem to be worth it. Oh. I don't know. Depends on who you are. Um, but when you have millions of dollars at stake as a business, you're going to put that effort into it. You're going to create those processes to make that happen. We're not so lucky. We are, mm. we don't have that benefit, that luxury. Given that we don't, it doesn't make sense for us to become as data driven and you know quantified as business like what what like you teach people how to make better decisions on on like what basis what are processes we can use if we're not you know keeping track you know with our blood glucose and our resting heart rate and on our mood on a on a minute by minute basis yeah so um as i coach my my like I am a personal consultant I coach individuals in making career decisions relationship decisions and you know where to live type decisions um, and I kind of offer a light version of that rigorous approach which is basically um, you know it, it kind of falls along the two streams of um, decision making study that's more rigorous which is how you should do it and why you won't do it right and um, in the in the light version of how you should do it, um, I really like to um, hit home this idea of like probabilistic thinking as opposed to black and white thinking, not jumping to conclusions. But so some of the questions that I, one of the major questions I ask my clients all the time are like, okay, what are the chances that this option will actually get you what you want? Like, let's really think that through and kind of doing a light version of forecasting in that way. Um, you know, what kind of information would you need to, to really know what the chances are? Like, what is the likelihood that um, choosing job A will make you happier than, than job B and et cetera? So, um, we, you know, it's not perfect, but my, my guess is, my sense is that as much as you can ask, the, you know, about the chances, as close as you can get to um, estimating or forecasting well or estimating likelihoods well, the better off you're, you're going to be. You're just kind of improving your shot. You're improving your chances. Mm. Um, so, so that's part of it, if that makes sense. Yeah. So um, like if you asked, I can't think of any decisions I have to make right away. Um, but if you asked me, like, what are the chances? Like, I don't know that I would have a, a good answer or any sort of a of a valid base rate. But just the question itself seems like it would right. make me think differently. 
Can you, right. Can you explain You're, that? Like, I'm not sure why. Yeah, it, it does because it, um, it forces you to think through the information that you have and the information that you need, in my opinion. So here's a great example. Um, say you are um, in a relationship with someone and you're not really quite sure whether you should stay with them or leave. And um, maybe the reason why you're not sure is because they, oh, I don't know, um, they have a tendency to flirt with other people, uh-huh. right? They're just kind of flirtatious and it makes you uncomfortable and you're not sure you can deal with it. Um, and you really don't want that to happen. Um, you know that you're not comfortable in a relationship where your partner is flirtatious with other people. You don't know what to do. You could think, should I stay or should I go? And you could run yourself in circles all day long, right? Like I should stay because I love this person. I should go because I can't stand this anymore. Um, but when I have clients who come to me with problems like that and I ask them, okay, what is the what is the likelihood that you will be happy if he continues or she continues this behavior? Um most of the time that probability kind of, it really kind of is a way of assessing just a, va- a value, right? It's not all, or, it assesses a value of, of your comfort level that informs you about yourself, which is kind of an insight that you should really know. Okay. I'm like, there's like a 5% chance I could ever deal with this mm. on a regular basis. Okay, great. What's the percentage um, likelihood that this person will ever change based on what you know about them, based on all the information you have, um, that kind of puts things in a real perspective. It kind of put, takes things out of this kind of imaginary hypothetical place where you, you wish for things or hope for things or fear for things and you make decisions based on that. You're now basing decisions on a statistical analysis on a number. And then I follow that up with the question, okay, what, what information do you need to have that you don't have in order to know that that percent likelihood is accurate? Like maybe you don't, know everything about, you know, their communications with other people. Maybe you want to know more. Maybe, maybe you don't know if they're actually cheating or not. Um, so it just, it's really about information gathering. It's about gathering the right data so you can make the right, um, estimates and you can draw the right conclusions. It becomes very, um, tangible and tactical as opposed to hypothetical and theoretical. And I think that really helps people make decisions better. Mm What you just described is something that I have very much never, ever seen in like media, in TV or movies or novels. Like it's not very romantic mm. or or sexy or even dramatic. No. And so like it, it just occurs like I've never seen a role model of that kind of decision like around the heart. No, I mean, I've often thought like if I was going to write a novel about a really good, you know, like that would incorporate decision science, it would be a flop because it's boring. It's just, you know, the thing, the thing that makes good stories is mistakes, people making mistakes and trying to overcome them or people facing challenges because they're flawed and overcoming their fatal flaws. Um, yeah, decision making the way that I approach it is all about trying to override your flaws. It's not very exciting. Um, unfortunately, though, you're right, there is no real role model for that. And you don't, you don't really learn that in school. And I think some people who talk the talk of that, like Dr. Fauci is a great example who talks in like, you know, probabilities or likelihoods, or we don't know, which is a very honest and accurate answer to say, this is information we don't have access to right now. Um, but here's the prognosis that you know, to our best, the best of our ability. And here's our recommendation given 
you know, all the evidence that we have available, you know, it's unless you trust him and you just go on his word, you're not really, it's not really exciting, right? It's not, he's a great role model, but Mm -hmm. he's not an exciting role model. Um, Though perhaps we should be modeling ourselves after that a little bit more. Uh huh. But there's also something very frustrating for people who, who want the black and white answer. We all want the black and white answer. The brain is a hyper efficient machine and it has to be because it soaks up a lot of energy. So it likes to draw conclusions quickly. It likes to think in black and white. It's kind of compelled to think not in terms of what information do you have or not have or what are likely that takes time that takes energy. We, we just don't want to do that. So even even people like Dr. Fauci, I'm sure even myself, I often take the short route to shortcut the quick route, the this the lazy um, way of thinking because it's easier. It's 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 just basic human nature. You know, kind of want to do that. Uh huh. So so one of the one of the things I'm thinking about is sort of the 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 thin slicing made famous by Malcolm Gladwell in mm-hmm. Blink. This idea that we have there are some decisions we should absolutely make on the spur of the moment without this kind of you know, torturous calculation. And I'm wondering, like, it sounds like you know, it sounds like you're arguing the opposite. So I wonder yeah. what your the, thoughts are. The way are. I like to think about it. Yeah, I had. Um, there were parts of that book that made me quite uncomfortable, I'll be honest, because it made me really think through like, OK, um, I, I tend to think about it in terms of constraints as opposed to like sometimes you just need to, you know, work on instinct or gut or make fast choices. Um, sometimes we don't have time. Sometimes even if we take all the time in the world, we'll never get the information we need. Sometimes mm-hmm. the stakes aren't high enough to be worth the effort. So to me, those are all kind of forms of constraints. They're not constraints that are placed on us by our institutions, for instance, or by our social context, but they're, they're temporal constraints or other types of um, influences that keep us bound. So I agree that there is always, you know, there are not always, but there are times and places where you have to make a quick decision, but not because the quick decision is going to lead to the best decision or to lead to the right outcome or optimize your outcome. I like to think decision science, we think of optimization. You can't predict you can't control what happens after you choose. You can only try to set yourself up for the best potential outcome. Um, and fast thinking, instinctual thinking, gut thinking doesn't always get you there, but sometimes you have no choice. So another bit of advice I always um, like to offer my clients before they make a choice is well, how much time do you have to make this choice? Because if you don't have a lot of time, mm. and let's just move. You know, We don't have to go through all this analysis. Um, but if you do have the time, um, and you can access that information. Why wouldn't you want to? Why Why wouldn't you want to just see what you get? Mm. Well, I mean, I can think of two reasons why okay. I wouldn't want to. What One is if I don't know the right way to do it, a lot of my long decision making process is just sort of rumination and second guessing. Mm-hmm. Right. So it feels like, well, this is a waste of time and I'd be better off flipping a coin. Yes. So um, I. Yeah, that is a really, really great point, because a lot of times people think they're making decisions or they're in the act of decision making when they're just kind of spinning their wheels or they're kind of ruminating, like you said. And um, for me, that's 
and nothing, don't take this personally, but it's like, it's really not effective decision-making progress when you're doing that. And usually the hang up there has to do with inadequate information. Like that's usually the hack that kind of snaps people out of that, that place where, well, I could think back and forth on this for like 10 years and I wouldn't come up with a great answer. Um, it's usually because you're not really, you don't really have that key information that's going to flip it for you. Um, and sometimes all it takes is asking yourself, well, what am I missing? It's a, it's a basic human tendency to assume that what you know is all there is to know when you make your decision. It's a basic human heuristic or shortcut to rely on your memory and one information you have that is that's easily available to your brain as you know key information to making your choices sometimes it's just well maybe i should actually go on the internet and google the likelihood that you know partners who flirt are also cheating like maybe i should do that and I, usually it's those kinds of hacks that get that people through that and also sometimes decision making is not effective or it just feels like ruminating or spinning your wheels because of the way that your your choices are architected for you so um if you have two options that have trade-offs that are negative um, it's kind of hard to think through negative. It doesn't feel good to think about, well, the drawback of this and the drawback of that. So sometimes flipping it to positives, um, turning it, like really focusing on the positive trade-offs and evaluating those will kind of get you moving forward to the right choice. So in my opinion, it's not so much that, um, that you know, taking time isn't always great. It's just that sometimes we're not always using it the best way for various reasons. And and my you know my rejoinder is one of the one of the ways that I can um, shoot myself in the foot with decision making is spend a lot of time on pretty inconsequential inconsequential decisions, right? As like, opposed to right where I'm constantly like we call analysis paralysis, where I'm constantly getting more and more information, and it, and it doesn't really matter. Yeah, you know I wonder in those instances the the culprit often might be anticipated regret. Sometimes, even though a decision is very tiny, we um, we feel like the weight of regret over that decision could be huge. Like the, um, for instance, what to wear to a party. Um, we might think, okay, it's just what I wear; it's not a big deal. But we might regret showing up and being underdressed or overdressed, and that regret might feel bigger than the actual choice itself or the the value of that choice. Another component of that is anticipated blame. Sometimes we feel um, this social pressure to make the right choices that we can't mess up. Maybe our uh, the people in our lives are kind of, um, um, uh, I don't know, we kind of feel like we need to save face in front of them and not not mess up for their sake. So even though the choices can be kind of small, we, we fear that 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 blame that might come if we mess up. So that's sometimes a hack too. like, you know, who are you answering to? How much are you worried about the regret? How much are you worried about blame? Um, and and versus how much are you really worried about this decision that the, the options in front of you? Mm. So you, you recently had a newsletter about basically reversibility. Yeah, uh, like to think about it um, that way, because like, one, you know, as a coach, one of the things I tell people is to like, don't be afraid to make wrong decisions, right? Because there's a way in which external information, more data 
is not the data you need when it's the, the data you need is the result of your own experiment. And 100%. you you can't know like how do you, how do you think about just it's okay like it's a good idea to go out and make a bunch of decisions so that you can learn how to make decisions. I I I give the same advice. Life is an experiment. You you know so many of the outcomes of our choices are beyond our control anyway. So again, like all we're doing is we're trying to optimize our chances. We're trying to set us, ourselves up for the best possible chances. Um, we're not, we can never guarantee success. So to be, be afraid of a bad outcome and to keep that, keep, to let that keep us paralyzed from making a choice is probably not a great move. Um, so yeah, I give the same advice. It's an experiment. You make, you make your choices carefully, as long as you've done your due diligence and you've gathered the right information, you've thought through it carefully. Um, you've tried to avoid bias of socially, you know, social influence, bandwagon effects, all of that. Make your choice um, and then just learn from it. And that's right. Information you get after your choice is made is often the information you wish you had before you made your choice, but you just couldn't have had it. Um, but the only caveat to that is, well, there are a couple of them. One is, you know, on, on, on the reversibility scale, how reversible is it? So in other words, some decisions you cannot take back no matter what. You can't reverse them. You cannot change them. They lock you into a path. Um, you know, which city to live in, it's really not totally irreversible, but it's really hard once you move to one city to then change your mind and say, oh, I should have moved over there and to actually reverse that decision. Um, there's a level of reversibility that every decision has. And then also, you know, the stakes or the consequences, which also include, you know, externalities or negative consequences for people around you. Sometimes some choices may have small personal consequences, but big ones for others around us. And we have to remember that sometimes the stakes for us are really high, but we're pretty aware of those, of those decisions and those, you know, those choices we want to take more time with. But, um, but yeah, like, you know, do the best you can. Like you, you're only human and you're all pretty much set up for failure with our, our, our brains being the way they are, our social environments being the way they are. Like it's, it's kind of a tough battle to make the right choice. So cut yourself some slack. Um, I'd love to share a decision that I made uh, a couple of months ago that was okay. it was a hard decision. It was one of those back and forth. And I'd love to get your take on, you know, the process that I went through to make it. And it was um, whether or not to hire a PR firm to help my co-author and myself promote our new book. And the, the, the relevant facts that I was dealing with were um, how much money it was going to cost, which which was I don't want to you know, go through the exact amount, but it was more than the advance. <laughs> and the advance was like going to help me write the book. Like it wasn't like, oh, this is fun money. This was like, you know, actual living expense money. Um, I didn't know anything about the PR firm except that they pitched us and we were very impressed and they had good authors and they had worked with someone else that I know who said they did a great job. And so, you know, and um, my co-author, Peter Bregman, um, kind of, you know, it's like more his book than mine in a little way, like his name's a little bigger on the cover. It's his methodology. And like I really wanted for if it was going to be a big book, a big bestseller, I wanted that for him as well as for me. And, and the, the way I made the decision ultimately was I thought about which I would regret more. And I th and I thought, like, suppose the PR firm sucks 
and we don't sell any books. Would I like would I feel worse if we got the same outcome, but I hadn't hired the PR firm? And we just and right. I decided, let's go for it. And actually, you know, to be perfectly honest, the sales have not been great. Like they like the PR firm has been wonderful, just to be clear, like they've done everything they said they were going to do. They've been really professional. They've got us a lot of podcast interviews, a lot of media, and it hasn't translated into sales. So in terms of like, did I get my ROI back? Absolutely not at this point. And I'm happy with the decision. Because if the same thing had happened and I hadn't gone for, for it, I would be kicking myself because I would think that I, I had blown our chance. <laughs> like, is there is there any right. rationality in there or is this just like, um, you know, rain dance? Well, just based on the limited information that you gave me, I think what I what I might have advised if I had that opportunity when you were making your choice is to actually try to kind of evaluate likelihoods like you um you were thinking about how much you might regret um regret it if if you say you hired a pr agency and it the book flopped or say you didn't hire a pr agency and the book flopped like which would you regret more um i would advise like just really kind of maybe evaluating just likelihoods of What's the likelihood that hiring a PR agency is actually going to convert to sales? So there must be some information out there. There must be some data. And you could even ask PR agencies, like, I don't know if they have this information. I, I doubt it, but it's worth trying. Just, you know, what what is your success rate? You know, of all the books that you have um, um, helped promote, what, you know, for each, what's the average dollar sales? for, you know, for all the books that you promoted. So you can use that as a likelihood um, estimate or um, I don't know, there are just a bunch of other things you might look into. So I would have maybe thought about that more so than regret, anticipated regret, because that is really, to me, it might be more about emotional management than about like optimizing your outcome. Mm. Um, and I'm not to, it's not to say that I haven't made decisions exactly the same way on a regular basis. Like I do this all the time, especially in my personal relationships. Like, oh, I don't, I don't want to, you know, you know, making decisions that have impact other people. But, um, but I think it's really important to kind of weigh how you're going to feel about something, um, and put it in its, its kind of put the proper weight on that, like how you're going to feel about an outcome, um, and also put the proper weight on you know, what, what outcomes are likely to lead you to your end game and how likely those are. So I was saying, like, when I was listening to you, like, this is how you should go back making that decision. Part of me was like, oh, like I had an answer that I wanted. And so I was going to do the things that were going to get me like I already knew, like that I was the kind of guy who was going to go for it. Right. And almost it was a little bit like of bravado, like telling my co-author, like, hell yeah, let's do it. Like like there was as much of that as there was any sort of, um, you know, process of, of like rational process. Yeah, I'm, that's it's not surprising to hear that because that's common. Like that's how we make our choices. Um, that's why people seek help from people like me to to. To, you know, Prevent, to prevent them from using those natural human impulses to make decisions. Um, 
But I think what you're what you're talking or you're speaking to is might have a little bit to do with, you know, this how we want to present ourselves to the world as we make our choices, like the way we want to appear to others as we make our choices, um, which speaks to expressive utility. You know, um, I I want to exude confidence. I want people to think I'm confident, so I'm going to make a decision confidently and quickly to signal that, even though um, it might not be the best conf actually confident decision. Um, yeah, that's very common too. That happens all the time. Yeah. So are there ways that we can use our bodies to help calibrate our decisions or evaluate decisions? Or is this entirely a cognitive process? Um, it's not an entirely cognitive process. Um, it's actually a very tough thing to do to um, to know when your emotions are in our information and when they are biasing you. Um, but the best way to hack that is to actually just ask that question. <laughs> like, um, sometimes we avoid doing things or we choose not to do things. We choose to put off things because they make us uncomfortable. And that's where procrastination comes, comes in. It's not really a time management issue. It's more, I don't really like doing this thing. So I'm going to put it off. And that's and to my, you know, detriment. And that's really kind of an, it's an emotional I call it emotional management. You're trying, to, you're trying to do things and control things in your environment or make choices just for the sake of feeling better, um, which is important, but it's not necessarily the best thing, especially in the longer term. Sometimes feeling bad in the short term is really what's going to get you to your longer term end game, which is going to make you feel wonderful down the road. So to know, to be able to just ask that question, like, am I, is this emotional feeling that I have? Is it, um, is it telling me that this choice is wrong for me? Or is this um, kind of a red herring leading me to avoid a choice or avoid an option that might actually be good for me? Um, and then you can just kind of start through that, go through that process of evaluating the answer to that, which can really, really help. Um, so I was asking about sort of body intuitions around like you meet someone and you get this gut feeling like, ooh, but you override it. And like there's a there's a train of thought that the body is basically the supercomputer going over everything, way more data than your brain can manage. Is there any any evidence for that? Yeah. Um, well, in some instances, this is actually true. I mean, we have innate instincts that protect us like you know this instincts are different to me than gut feelings i think sometimes people um confuse the two and they say they're going mm. on their gut and they're going on their instinct or when somebody says oh i have an instinct for marketing or i have an instinct for style and fashion no, that's not an instinct um instincts have to do with you know finding food survival food protecting yourself from danger um procreating, things like that. And in some instances, like, you know, I used to train in Krav Maga, self-defense, um, martial arts. And one thing they would teach you is you don't, you don't wait and think um, when you feel like you're in danger, you act because then it could be too late. And I think there is something to be said for that. Like you can tell when someone's in your space, they're a stranger, you don't know them and they're kind of encroaching on your space, your instincts might kick in and you might think, okay, fight or flight. And you might 
want to do something about that. Um, but then on the other hand, you could be walking down the street and um, someone who is, you know, an African-American could be walking towards you and your gut or instincts might tell you there's danger mm. when really you are just biased and there's no danger at all. You're just reacting and you could feel just as, you know, threatened emotionally. So um, it, there's, it's kind of a fine line. I think um, when you, when you feel like your life is in danger, it's really kind of tricky to, it's tricky for someone like me to ask someone else to second guess that mm -hmm. because the stakes are so high. Um, but at the same time, when you are not in danger, when you're not in those moments where, um, you know, where a, you know, danger is imminent or a decision is need, that needs to be made is imminent. If you practice removing bias from your decision-making, then the chances that it'll be automatic in those moments will also occur as well. So the chances that if you're actively mindful on a daily, regular basis about your, you know, gut response to, um, to African-American males, and you can recognize that's a bias and try to overcome that, then in those moments, um, that will be less of an, um, of a trigger for you. Um, yeah. So you mentioned Krav Maga. So um, I did Krav Maga for a couple of months and it really helped me sort of loosen up about like my own capacity to act. Um, but the other the, I've, I've lately I've done a martial art for the last you know, 10 years called Sistema, which is a Russian form. Mm -hmm. And, you know, like many like most martial arts, the, the highest form is not to use it. Right. right. So <laughs> yes. like you get good at it. So you're confident enough that you can express, you know, you can diffuse situations without needing it. And one of the things they, they talk about is make your decision in advance. Like what's what are you going to walk away from and what are you not? So that leads me to like this idea of like making decisions in advance so that when you are hot, you know, like Dan Ariely talks a lot about sort yes. of like, you know, these heated emotions that you already have a playbook to follow. You know, that is really great. Um, that is great advice. And it is something that martial artists do. And, and you know, addition and tra to training in Krav Maga, I used to compete in Muay Thai kickboxing. And that's all a lot of our training was developing, well, partially muscle memory, but also um, just practicing techniques and moves over and over again that fit specific scenarios. So if they do X, you will do Y and it'll be automatic and you don't have to think it through. Um, and I think that is really all well and good when you're in a hot state um, to prepare yourself when you're in a cold state. To, that's just planning, right? Just basic planning. It's the same sort of principle that goes behind dieting. Like you know that you're going to have cravings. You just plan your meals in advance so that when that moment comes and you're like, oh, I want that chocolate cake. Nope, nope. I'm going to have those grapes because that's what I plan to eat for dinner, for dessert that, you know, after dinner. Um, in, in theory, it's great. In practice, it doesn't work as well as we'd like, unfortunately. You know, my trainer in, in Muay Thai used to always tell me that you know, of all the things that I'm pre preparing to do in the ring when the fight comes, the day of the fight comes and I'm in that ring in that fight, I'm only going to remember and do 50% of them. So you almost have to kind of be prepared mm -hmm. for that. And hot states are just that for a reason. You you act on impulse, you make dif different decisions. And then when you're back and in being into a cold state, you kind of don't even have empathy for her, for who you were in that hot state. Like, how could I do that? You're hyper judgmental. And we also are hyper judgmental of other people who make bad decisions in hot states, but it's just kind of a, 
a function of, again, being human, um, it's a little bit of preparing, but also not expecting perfection and cutting yourself some slack and then learning from, from the decisions that you make. Mm. So what do you recommend for hot states? So a lot of people listening to this podcast are interested in eating better. And, yeah. you know, the, the temptation is going to come like, you know, that's that's first of all, that's huge to acknowledge in advance that you are going to have cravings as opposed to just, you know, wishing them away somehow. Uh, but do you recommend, you know, sort of what, what I guess they called Ulysses contracts where you tie yourself to the mast or you you make it very, very difficult. Yeah. Like <laughs> if, if, if you won't, if you can't totally control yourself in that moment, how do you prepare for that moment? So I think one thing that I advise um, often is to kind of hack hack the situation by altering the rewards you might get for whichever decision you choose to make. So for dieting, for instance, um, you know, we tend to do something behavioralist economists call delayed discounting. We tend to overvalue rewards mm -hmm. we get in the short term relative to those um, rewards that we might get in the long term. And so, you know, we might think, okay, well, I want to lose weight in two months or three months, I'll be at my goal weight. But if I eat that cake, I'll have a really great experience today, like right now. Um, and for some reason, that short-term reward feels really great. So sometimes what I advise clients to do and what I do sometimes is um, kind of plant um, either rewards or punishments that are maybe contrived or artificial that will be triggered if I make a decision in the short term that will then make that short-term decision seem less valuable than it actually is and that long-term decision more valuable. So for instance, um, if I um, eat that, if I eat a piece of cake in the next three months, if I have any sugary dessert in the next three months, um, I will enjoy that sugary dessert. But um, the, oh, I don't know, um, deep, dark secret that I've told my friend that I don't want anybody to know, she has permission to blast my deep, dark secret on Twitter. Now, whether that will actually happen or not, I don't know. You have to kind of create a scenario that works. There's an app called stick.com um, that is just it's all about that it's about you know if you 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 have you set short term goals if you don't meet those goals then they have you have authorized stick.com to um, donate you know however money how much money you want to a charity that you hate mm -hmm. so if you like hate you know the NRA or PETA, depending on who you are, it will, and you don't meet your goal, then you're stuck with sending that group money. So it kind of, it's kind of a sting that you can factor into. Yeah, cake tastes good, but ugh, I don't want them to have my money. So that's kind of a hack that sometimes works um, when you're in that hot state to remember that, you know, even in a hot state, we can remember punishment. <laughs> we can remember those drawbacks that are uh -huh. severe anyway. Wow. So one thing you just said that I've never heard before around that is you get to enjoy the cake or the sugar, right? That you're not you're not saying that I should feel guilty for doing this. You're just saying that there is a consequence. Is, is, is that important? Yeah, that that d distinction. Well, at the time that you're making the decision, it it's variable. It depends on who you are, whether you are anticipating guilt. I think a lot of us fall off our diets because we don't anticipate that guilt until after we eat the cake and they're like, oh, we shouldn't have done that. But we don't really, you know, we're mm. so overwhelmed by the, the the craving and that hot state of like, oh, that cake, that we don't really think about that guilt. 
Um, and yeah, I don't know. I mean, if there's a way, and this is all really just personal, right? If there's a way that you can hack your way into um, remembering that guilt is this punishment that you're going to feel once you eat it, because someone you know has promised to guilt you, um, for instance, then you know that could work as well. Um, but yeah, I think guilt is an interesting emotion. It's kind of an interesting. Um, I like to think of it as a bit of feedback. You know, if with every decision you make, you have some feedback as to whether that was the right decision or mm. to help you assess the right decision. Um, and guilt can sometimes be that feedback. Um, it can sometimes be um, inaccurate feedback because sometimes we feel guilty about things we have no reason to feel guilty about. Um, and those are more deep-seated issues that a therapist probably can help with. <laughs> That probably stemmed from right. childhood. Often. I mean, for me, it's it's. Uh huh. I mean, for me, it's the, about my relationship with the guilt. So if I think of the guilt as feedback, like I've touched a hot stove and I stop, that could be useful as opposed to the guilt that makes me feel lousy about myself. So I need another piece of cake, and I and I, right. I spiral down. Right. Absolutely. If I, it, it's really helpful to think about guilt as information. It's really important to think about a lot of our, our emotions as, or as bits of information as opposed to um, our decision makers or our, um, our evaluators and judges. Like, oh, I feel guilty. That's mm. interesting. What does, what does that do now for as far as what does – how does that improve my decision making for next time, knowing that guilt is something I will experience from this and that I don't really like it? Um, it it's, uh -huh. a, it's a I think it's a healthier so, way of thinking yeah. of things. Which I, to me speaks to it's, it's a overused word, but sort of mindfulness, like there's way like when I feel guilty, that's one of the things I really don't want to feel. So it's easy for me to lash out at someone else who's making me feel guilty or right. to distract myself. But to just to be willing, like if it's information, then I can take it in with more detachment. And even if it's like, you know, causing like, you know, agita in my belly, it's still something that I can have a different kind of relationship with rather than totally. I got to make this stop. Totally, totally. Then you're not a slave mm -hmm. to your feelings. You're not a slave to your hot states. Mm -hmm. right. So, in, So in our conversation, you've mentioned a whole bunch of like cognitive biases, you know, future discounting, I guess, you know, sort of availability bias, which you didn't didn't say by name, but like what's on our, you know, um, you know, f inaccurate base rates, like there's hundreds of them, right? Do we have to become experts on all of those? Or is there, you know, is there like a takeaway oh, for people that you, you want to share about like how to think about am I am I being a good decision maker here? Yeah, um, you'll never know it all. And even, you know, Daniel Kahneman will say, like, as much as he knows he's not making the best decisions either, you can know all of it and still fail on a regular basis. Uh, I think the trick is to not think of it as failure. Um, and I think the trick is not to worry about perfection. Um, if you If you enter each choice you make, with the goal of optimizing your chances, like setting yourself up for the best chance possible, then I think that's the best that you you can do. And 
if you learn along the way, you know, whether you read behavioral economics, there are quite a few websites that just give basic definitions of biases. You can get flashcards and posters of like common fallacies. I mean, the more you understand these things, also the more you understand about like the sociological influences around us, the way that our friends influence us, our parents, bandwagons, the majority, um, the more you know about all of this, then just the more optimal your decision-making is going to become. You're just going to get better and better and better at it. So I mean, this isn't really decision science. I think this is just maybe just my point of view that as long as you're improving, um, that's great. You're better off, right? That's that's the that's awesome. Hmm. Yeah. Which I mean, you're bringing up something that we haven't talked about at all, which is an environment that is basically conspiring us to get us to make certain types of decisions. Right. And so yeah. you know, un understanding like their come froms and their motives. And the means that they use, whether you know it's you know whether it's bandstanding or or um, you know social proof or you know yep. comparisons. Um, so I'm, we're not just we're just not just making decisions in a vacuum. No, 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 no. We are social creatures. We are by nature social creatures. We um, highly value and prioritize social harmony. Because social harmony means that we, that reciprocity will continue, that we can lean on each other, we can rely on each other for survival. So harmony is important, which means belonging becomes a very um, powerful need. And, um, and we also just kind of want to, we, we have a tendency to go along with those who are around us. Those who are around us really, really influence us. And a lot of times it's important. Mm -hmm. Like we need, for instance, we need social norms or else there'll be havoc, there will be havoc and chaos, right? We won't be able to follow basic rules that will maintain social order. We need that. But sometimes those basic rules that we follow in, in, in the name of, in the spirit of order and harmony aren't really very good rules for us um, or for everyone else. Like, um, so you know, challenging those rules, the, making the choice to challenge rules, to kind of do your own thing, to stand alone um, is sometimes necessary. It's very hard. But if we can recognize when we need to do that and when we don't, that's a really important distinction as well. And just asking ourselves, okay, like in this choice, I may have to go against do something contrary to my social group's preferences Am I willing to stand alone for the sake of this decision or not? Um, that's that's mm. that's also its own choice, right? But we have to ask those choices and remember that forever for for every social group we're in, I mean, there are maybe five or six other social groups waiting right there in the wings for us to join that might actually accept our our a decision that's optimal for us. Mm hmm. Gotcha. Well, so we, we could go on all day, but uh, yeah. I think I'm, this this is a good taste. Uh, how can people find you, follow you, learn from you? Yeah, so um, you can find me on my website, and that's called yournextdecision.com. Um, if you subscribe, you'll get email letters from me every week, as how he's mentioned. And um, you can also send in um, advice that I um, might answer on my advice column online. So that's yournextdecision.com. Awesome. So, Nika, thank you so much 
for for your generosity of sharing all this information with the with the general public. And thank you so much for taking the time today and for for putting up with this uh, apparently experimental technology. Oh, thank you for having me. I really had a lot of fun talking with you, Howie. And that's a wrap. I hope you look back on the last hour and think that that was a good decision that you made to spend the time with Dr. Kabiri and myself. So today's episode is 496, which means if you go to plantyourself.com slash 496, you'll find the show notes with links to Dr. Kabiri's website where you can find uh, articles she's written. You can sign up for her newsletter. And you can also, if you want, hire her as a private decision consultant. When you think about the costs of some of the decisions we make, it's probably not a bad uh, decision to spend a few hundred bucks on an hour of uh, Dr. Kabiri's time and uh, see if you can optimize that decision. I'm certainly going to keep her in my Rolodex. Uh, for those of you who remember what a Rolodex is, um, my address book for uh, any times where I really need some help with that. So what else is going on? Um, it's getting cold. So I went out this morning to do some yard work. And after about 15 minutes, I was unable to lift the shovel. It's only in the 30s, but something about my hands and uh, ordinary gloves don't just don't work out. So I, I did two loads of mulch. And I will get my movement today with the Monkey Bar Gym um, sort of yoga base class this afternoon. I've been playing ultimate and doing the morning workouts, getting a little bit stronger. Um, as I as I get back to the heavier weights. So my knee's healing pretty good. Um, garden, just got another load of mulch that has to go over all of the beds that we've been, you know, pulling nutrition from, pulling um, fertility from in the form of produce and not putting stuff back in. So I don't like to use commercial fertilizers. So um, you know, piling up the mulch and the wood chips is a way to slowly and naturally return the fertility of that soil so that soil can return some fertility and nutrition to us next summer. All right, time for thanks. Thanks to Will Reidenauer for allowing me to use his beautiful song, Sabali Dawn, The Dance of Peace. You can find more of Will's music at his website, willreidenauer.com. And of course, thanks to all of you Plant Yourself podcast patrons. Kim Harrison, Lynn McClellan, Brittany Porter, Dominic Maurer, Barbara Whitney, Tammy Black, Amy Good, Amanda Hatterley, Mary Jane Wheeler, Ellen Kennelly, Melissa Cobb, Rachel Behrens, Tina Scharf, Tina Ahern, Jen Filkonofsky, David Bizek, The Mysterious, Michelle X, Elspeth Feldman, Leah Stoller, Alan Christensen, Colleen Peck, Michelle Landry, Josina, Sarah Durkis, Kelly Cameron, Janet Selby, Claire Adams, Tom Franza, Jeanette Benham, Gila Serk, David Donahue, Blair Cyber, Dorona Vizov, Gio and Carolyn Argentati, Jody Friesner, Misha Rosen, Michael Warbeck, Aviva Lael, Alicia Lemus, Val Lineman, Nick Harper, Bandana Chawley, Molly Levine, The Inscrutable, Harry R., Susan Laverty, The Panda Vegan, Craig Kovic, Adam Scharf, Karen Burry, Heather Morgan, Nigel Davies, Marion Blum, Teresa Copel, Julian Watkins, Breed O'Connell, Sharon Hirschman, Linda Ayad, Holm Hedegaard, Isa Tuzinwa, Connie Hainline, Aaron Greer, Alicia Davis, Heather O'Connor, Carolyn Jensen, Sherry Olakoski of Plant Power for Health, Karen Smith, Scott Morani, Karen and Joe Crabtree, Kirby Burton, Teresa Carell, Kevin McCauley, Elizabeth Rothschild, Ann Jesse, Cheryl Dwyer, Jenny Hazelton, Peter W. Evans, Dennis Bird, Darby Kelly, Lori Fanny, Linnea Lundquist, Emily Iconelli, Levy Wallach, Rosamund McAtee, Dan Picorni, Stephen Leenan, Patty DiMartino, Mike and Donna Kartz, Deanne Bishop, Billbury Elf, Marjorie Lewis, Trisha Adams, Nancy Sheldon, Lindsay Bayshore, Gunmarit Hagen, Tracy Gulledge, Laura Heaton, Meg for Mama Says, Stacey Stokes, Ben Savage, Michael Kay, David Hughes, Connie Rogers, Claire England, Sally Robertson, Paranganchi. 
Amy Daly, Brian Tourville, Mark Jeffrey Johnson, Josie Dempsey, Karen Schmidt, Pamela Hayden, Emily Perryman, Allison Corbett, Richard Stone, Lauren Vaught of Edible Musings, Aaron Hasty, Sean Owen, Sagar Nayak, Erica Piedra, Danielle Roberts, Michael Lushton, Sarah Johnson, Catherine Floyd, for your generous support of the podcast. That's it for now. As always, be well, my friends. 